Uh, Well, our uh, text this morning is in Luke chapter 13, so I invite you to turn there, click there, or uh, follow along. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, Luke chapter 13, I want to read the first nine verses and uh, explore how God's Word can speak to us today. Uh, It says this, Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than any of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Uh, Or those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than the others who were living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told them this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard And when he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've come to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it will bear fruit in the next year, fine. If it doesn't, then cut it down. Uh, This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Now, verse 1 of chapter 13 feels a bit like we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. Uh, And so Jesus, to give us a kind of, to orient ourselves a little bit to this passage, Jesus uh, is heading to Jerusalem with a crowd, uh, and people start talking to him about Galileans, uh, and this is how the scripture puts it, how Pilate had mixed Galileans' blood with their sacrifices. Uh, Now, scholars uh, agree that what this is referring to is an event where Galileans whom had gone to a house of worship and then Pilate uh, had them killed in the temple, in the house of worship. Uh, And so this is actually, it's very easy to kind of look over verse one and kind of miss the weight that we're kind of immediately thrown into uh, in this passage of scripture. Uh, So if we're not paying attention or if we are paying attention, it should cause us to kind of pause and begin to try to understand the scene a little bit Uh, rather than just reading over it, but rather understand the weight of what's happening here. Uh, Because, again, to kind of make the picture clear that what what the Scripture says when it's talking about Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, uh, it's referring to an event where Galilean worshipers were killed by Pilate's minions in their own house of worship. Um, and, And so the question is, like, who is this Pilate, Right? that would do something like this. Well, Pilate uh, was the governor of a Roman province, the Roman provinces of Judea and Samaria. Uh, And his responsibilities included the mundane, like, you know, uh, tax collection, managing construction projects, etc. But his responsibilities as governor also included maintaining law and order. Uh, And part of this was meant that as governor in this kind of ancient context, he had the right to order execution of any accused criminal uh, in, in ways that he saw fit or whenever he deemed it necessary, which is precisely the case when he ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Here's an accused criminal, and Pilate sort of has carte blanche right to just order the execution if he pleases, And what history tells us is that Pilate was a bit of a nasty dude. (laughs) Uh, History shows us that Pilate would would accomplish what he couldn't accomplish through negotiation. Uh, He was willing and ready to accomplish through brute force. 
Uh, and so he was always doing things that ranged from the annoying or uh, bothersome to the Jewish people to going and being just downright violent. Uh, in fact, there was once where he stole money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct. Uh, that is, he once stole money from a treasury that wasn't in his charge in order to build his pet project. Uh, and so when people began to rebel against such practices, uh, he actually squashed the rebellion through violence. Uh, this was Pilate's MO, his modus operandi, was uh, anytime he felt threatened, he would eliminate the threat through violence or the threat of violence. And so it isn't too far-fetched uh, to believe that as pilgrims from Galilee uh, were gathered in their temple to offer sacrifices, that Pilate, fearful uh, of riot and suspicious of people of another religion, uh, would send troops into the temple and slaughter the people there. And uh, during Lent, one of the practices of the church, the global church, is to practice lament. And I think we can lament that unfortunately, 2,000 plus years later, uh, the scene of blood spilled in a house of worship is too familiar. Now, Jesus had gained enough of a following uh, by this time in his life and in his ministry that uh, people were trying to, they, they were telling Jesus about this. They didn't have news media, social media. It was based, word of mouth was how things like this got around. And so uh, the people gathering with Jesus had heard about this event, were telling Jesus about it, and, and they wanted to know uh, what was he going to say in the face of such a tragedy, Right? Uh, what is Jesus going, what, what is Jesus' commentary on this tragedy that has taken place? Um, now understand that anytime a leader or someone as a person of influence um, is asked about something in this, this weighty, uh, understand that this puts them in quite a pickle, <laughs> right? Because it doesn't matter what uh, Jesus says, he's going to be in trouble with somebody. Uh, commentator Warren Wearsby says this, he says, since Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, anything that he has to say about Pilate is sure to get there before he does. And if he ignored the issue, the crowd would accuse him of being pro-Roman and disloyal to his own people. But if he defended the Jews and accused Pilate, then, then he would be in trouble with the Romans. So we kind of need to understand that in this, this like kind of unclear kind of story where we're jumped right into the middle of it, uh, we, we understand that we're kind of jumping into this environment that is so charged and so divided that no matter what Jesus says right here at this point, people are ready to peg him as being on a side, right? Uh, that free from nuance, free from conversation, uh, people wanted to put Jesus on one side of this political line or the other. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> and this is why Jesus' response is actually so brilliant, right? I mean, Jesus, it's kind of like no matter what he says, he is going to be in a pickle. So what does he say? Well, verse 2 says this. Jesus answered, and I'll read all of Jesus' response through verse 5. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than any other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than others that were living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, before we understand what Jesus is saying, it might be helpful to understand what Jesus is not saying, right? Jesus' first order of business in his response is to squash any notion that this tragedy in the temple happened because of someone's sin. Right? Jesus' first order of business is to squash any belief or idea that this tragedy happened because of some person's sin or a people's sin. Now, it's a common belief in the ancient world that blessing and suffering were tied directly to obedience and sin. This is why you have uh, people or stories in the scripture where people ask Jesus questions like this. Who sinned that this man is blind? Was it him or was it his parents? The understanding being that this blindness is a direct effect of someone's sin. If there's a suffering of any kind, if you, you have to be able to trace it back to sin somewhere, right? This is the ancient mindset. And what Jesus is doing is he's squashing anything right away that this happened because of someone's sin. Uh, but we find out that this actually isn't just an ancient belief, is it, right? Too often in Christianity, people have tried to draw a straight line from blessing to personal piety, and from suffering to personal sin. And Jesus, over and over again in the scriptures, wants to squash this notion. We see it in this passage, and Jesus' response to the question, uh, who, who has sinned that this, man is born, that this man is blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, it was neither one. <laughs> right? I mean, you've heard it before, haven't you? If you accept Christ, everything in your life will fall into place and you'll have trouble no more. Or maybe you've heard it before. Blame your current situation and the trouble of your current situation on some hidden sin in your life. We've heard it before. The ones who say tragic events are God's judgment on a particular sin that they love to call out. <laughs> Jesus will have nothing of this, right? And I think that's important for us to understand. Jesus wants nothing to do with this kind of like straight line, mechanical, formulaic idea that, that you kind of live right and you'll have blessing. Now, generally speaking, if you live right, you'll probably experience some blessing, right? And gen you reap what you sow. So generally speaking, if you live in terrible ways, there'll be some consequences to pay. But Jesus is not on board with this mathematic, formulaic, straight line, oh, there's suffering, there must be sin in the background, or there's blessing, there must be piety in the background. Jesus will have nothing to do with this, right? Now, the other thing that people try ought to do sometimes with this passage is turn it into a churn or burn kind of passage. Uh, they want to make Jesus' words into the equivalent of repent or you'll get the hell you deserve, <laughs> And uh, preachers used to preach like that. <laughs> uh, but I would want to say that regardless of kind of whatever you think about that, there's this passage in particular actually has a much finer point to it. In fact, has a much more current point to it. Uh, because if, if you turn the passage into a churn or burn, right, repent or you'll get the hell you deserve, then that tends to move everything from right here to out there, Right? And, and, and Jesus wants to make a much finer point, a much more current point about what is happening. And so, 
again, let's get, the, let's get the picture in our minds. As the crowd tries to politically pin Jesus into this camp or the other, what Jesus does is he gives a response that rises above the divisive framework and points people to a kingdom politic. You with me? What Jesus' response does, in general, is it rises above this divisive framework and then points people to a kingdom politic. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Clearly, this passage is a call to repentance, right? We cannot avoid that. Jesus is calling people to repent. Do you know what repent means? Repent means to think differently, to change one's mind, and then, as a result, move in a different direction. Right? So repentance is essentially this. I'm going this way, and I'm going this way because I have these frame of mind, this perspective, this, the lens by which I see the world. And repentance is I'm renewed in my mind. I have a new perspective, new thought. I change my mind. And as a result, I churn and go in a whole new direction. Right? That's Repentance. And so what Jesus is essentially calling them to in this repentance is a renewing of their mind, as the Apostle Paul would say. And we need to learn to see things differently. And so clearly Jesus is calling them to repent. But if you're like me, at a first read of the passage, you're kind of like, but why? <laughs> right? Like, what did they do? Or, or like, what, what is happening that this scene that's kind of thrown at us in verse 1 what is that what is the connection between this call to repentance and so jesus clearly jesus is calling them to repent but why well i think we get um a clearer idea of that if we begin to look at the greek now the english word to t-o-o is the greek word uh homois homo ois homois h-o-m-o-i-o-s you 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 get a mic and try it. <laughs> so <laughs> I like had I had it nailed in my office. I was like, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, but, but then then I didn't. So now what that word means? Uh, what that word means is in the same way. So a perfectly acceptable translation for this verse or this phrase could be: Unless you repent, you will perish in the same way which is exactly what the uh, common English Bible does. Uh, It says, unless you change your hearts and lives, then you will die just as they did. So let's follow Jesus' thought. Are the victims of tragedy greater sinners than others? Or did they suffer this tragedy because of their sin? The answer is no. But I say to you, change your mind, think differently, and go in another direction, or you will reach the same fate as they did. Jesus will later say this much more clearly to Peter. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's continue to unpack this. Now, specifically what Jesus is doing is he's calling them to repent of the desire to rise up against Rome by way of rebellion right? To respond to this oppression by way of of violent rebellion. That's specifically what Jesus is calling them to repent of. Repent of this desire to rise up against Rome by way of rebellion, because if you do, then you will meet the same end and in the same way as the folks in the temple that day. 
And so it's an invitation to not respond to rebellion with rebellion. But again, we need to understand the context. Jesus was saying this to a group that was eager to find out which side of the line Jesus was on. How do you feel about this issue? Are you on their side? Are you on our side? Uh, Which are all questions largely, and I want you to hear me here, all questions largely motivated by fear. What will happen, right? This, This unknown, what will happen if we don't agree? What will happen if you don't see things the same way I do? What will happen if there's this, this contingent of people that, that think differently or look differently or all these kinds of things? It's all of these questions that are being asked of Jesus to peg him on one side of the line or the other are all questions that are motivated by fear. Now let's make sure we also understand this character, Pilate. Pilate as an authoritative figure is almost exclusively ruled and motivated also by fear. I mean, he, he was threatened, suspicious, fearful of people practicing a different religion. So he sent in minions to their house of worship in order to kill them. Their blood mixed with the, sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifices they had offered. He then ordered Jesus' crucifixion for fear of the crowd, right? I mean, if you read the crucifixion story, Pilate is just like, I don't want anything to do with this. And then he senses this uprising, and it's kind of like, okay, fine, kill this guy. (laughs) Let's get rid of this guy if it will appease the crowd. Pilate made a life of silencing opposition through violence. I, I want you to see here that that part of the motivation behind these questions is part of the same motivation that, 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 that Pilate has, that it's all sort of like driven by fear. And so Jesus is essentially saying this, and I want you to hear it. If you are motivated by fear, then you are at risk of carrying out or approving of these terrible acts that are motivated by fear. And so if you, you need to repent or you will meet the same end. That a life driven by, motivated by, dictated by fear is going to lead you down a particular road, right? And so Jesus' words are repent, change your mind, learn to see the world in a new way, not through the lens of fear of other, but rather through the lens of love of enemy, <laughs> embrace of other, right? And in so doing, then you will go and walk in a new direction. (laughs) Which is why Jesus' response is so brilliant. Here's a group that has been victimized by acts of fear, responding with fear, wanting to peg him one side of the line or the other. Which side are you on? Do you hold the same ideologies as me and this and that and that? And Jesus rises above the entire divisive framework, points them to a kingdom politic and says, don't live in these ways. The very posture of your hearts is in need of repentance. To which I, if I was in the crowd that day, I would have been like, what are you talking about? I don't have anything to repent of. I just want to know that you're on the right side. (laughs) Right? Jesus 
again, just in his brilliance, is, is going to engage faithfully with the acts and, and the, the events and the things going on in his world, but he's not going to contribute further to this fear motivation or this fear mongering, but rather he's going to point people to a, what I call a kingdom politic. Uh, politic comes from the Greek word uh, polis, which means city, as in metrop polis, right? Uh, The world city. That's what metropolis literally means, the world city. So when we talk about politics, what we're talking about is just how do we organize our lives together. So a kingdom politic is a way of pointing ourselves of we begin to organize ourselves according to kingdom of God ways. And Jesus is very clear, don't be motivated by fear. Repent of that. Move in another direction or you will go down that same road and it will have the same exact end. So here's what I want to say to us today. For us, living in a world that just sounds really familiar, right? To what Jesus is thrown into in this story. For us, living in such a politically charged and divided context, where we want to peg one another, right? I mean, how true is it that we just want to, we want to peg one another? What side of the line are you on, you know? Um, it's an invitation for us to change the way we think about how we engage with such divisive topics or we'll just be adding to the noise. And so some practical applications here is if we fight hate with hate, we've done nothing to rid the world of hate, <laughs> right? If we respond to division with divisive talk, we've done nothing to bring unity. If we are motivated by fear, we've done nothing to rid the world of terrible actions motivated by fear. And what the Scripture says is that perfect love casts out fear. And so the better way of operating in the world is through one of love. Um, Sometimes people assume that the best way to not contribute to further division uh, is to uh, disengage altogether and just not say anything um, and not engage at all. Um, And and I I don't want you to hear me saying that, right? Um, I would say this is not the answer because what Jesus does is he he faithfully engages, uh, but at a totally different plane, at a totally different level. And so uh, this does not mean, so what I don't want you to hear me saying this morning is that you can't hold convictions you should hold convictions about how the world works best, right? And, and even about, like, the kingdom politic. But if we're, if we're holding those convictions and we're engaging faithfully and, and we're engaging in the ways that Christ calls us to engage, then what that means is that we can faithfully engage important topics from a kingdom of God perspective, but we can do it with mercy and the graciousness of Christ. Amen? Like, what would happen in a world so divided if the, if the church, the people of God, began to have really important discussions but do it with the grace and the mercy of God with one another where we could faithfully disagree, right? This is how I see the scriptures and the ministry and the, of Jesus and the gospel. No, this is how I see it, but we can still come to the table and confess Jesus Christ is Lord.
right? What I long for and what I hope for in such an age of division is for the church, and I, and I mean, yes, I mean this church, but I also mean the church, the capital C church, is to begin to be a prophetic witness to the world, which is, in fact, our job, <laughs> which is, in fact, like what we're called to do is be this alternative community, this, this city of God, right, that, that, that kind of organizes our lives in ways that don't necessarily make sense because we're not recognizing all the same divisions and, and, and lines that, that maybe the culture draws and, and, and draws up and makes up and does all that. And, and yet we come to the table every week to profess our faith in Christ and offer our thanksgiving to what, for what Christ has done in his work. And we come as one, right? That even the act of communion becomes this like prophetic uh, protest, <laughs> this like peaceful protest of what it means to be the people of God in the world, right? Um, and, and so, can I be the first one to raise my hand? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I will, right? I'll raise my hand and say, man, have I been guilty of drawing lines and just pegging people up, this, that, and man, I just feel like as I was studying this passage, man, there was this, this, this real uh, work of the Spirit in me of how do we faithfully engage important conversations in the world that are happening, right? But do it in a way that is full of mercy and full of grace so that we can rise above this like divisive framework and offer to people a kingdom politic. Of the, as the people of God, this is what we feel like it means uh, to operate according to the kingdom way, the way of Christ. And, and we may disagree about some things, right? Like as we faithfully, prayerfully engage the scriptures, seek the Holy Spirit, it is still possible that we may come to different conclusions. And, and, and just being able to still say, you are my brother, you are my sister. Amen? Do you guys, do you guys hear my heart today? Um, I, I, this is what I long for, just, not just for our church, but for, for the church, is to be able to engage in these, these important conversations. Because here's the other approach, right? The other approach is just like skip and snap and pretend like nothing is happening, right? And that they're pretending like there are no important conversations to have. And, and so... Um, and if you guys have been under, uh, if, you, if you've been attending this church for any amount of time, you recognize uh, that as hard as I try to just skip and snap into, into happy land and just ignore what's happening in the world, I can't. I, I'm always opening my mouth and saying things I probably shouldn't. Um, but that's all in an effort to help us engage faithfully with important conversations. Um, and, and I want to commit to do it in a more gracious way mercy-filled way. And I wonder if you would join me in that. Uh, and just to, to see uh, the beauty of Christ's words here, uh, that we might be ones who would repent. If we've been walking the ways that are the road, the well-trotted path of fear, motivated by fear, driven by fear, that we may then churn, repent of that, and begin to walk uh, the fresh path of love. Well, there's this little bit about the fig tree, uh, but I'm going to offer that to you by way of benediction uh, when we end our service.
Um, so let's say a word of prayer and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, um, your word is living and active. And even this, uh, what feels like a kind of a random quick story where Jesus calls us to repent and then tells a story about a fig tree, through the work of your Spirit can be living and active in our lives. So God, I pray today that you would help me um, not to like ignore the important questions and conversations and topics that we need to be talking about as the people of God, um, but to talk about those things in ways that aren't divisive, that aren't filled with hate, um, but rather with grace and mercy flowing from our lips, but still faithful to, to talk about the things that we need to. And Lord, help us as we search the scriptures, as we depend on your spirit and the, the leadership of your spirit, God, would you help us um, to discern and discover truth and beauty in the world and in you. And so, God, while I pray this prayer for me, I also pray it for this community. That, God, that we would be a community through, that through our kind of organic life together and through programs and, and things that are structured, that we would begin to learn what it means to be in conversation with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ who come to the table each and every week unified under the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord but then beginning to work out all the implications of what that might mean. And so God, may, while we may not all hold the same opinion, I do pray, God, that we would be a body of Christ unified in you. And God, I pray that prayer also for the larger church, the church universal, that crosses denominational lines, uh, that crosses uh, boundary lines of geography, that, that across the world, as people come together to worship you, that your church may be unified and that we together might be a prophetic witness of what it means to be the people of God in this time and in all the variety of our different places. For God, we celebrate that the church universal, the big C church, exists in all these local communities, many of them small that are faithfully engaging with how to live for you and walk in the ways of Christ. So God, be with us. We need your help. We need your discernment today. And thank you for the wisdom that is offered to us from the scriptures. We give you thanks and praise. Be with us now as we gather around the Lord's table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.